Well, good morning again. If you've got a Bible, open with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. We've been in a series that we are calling A King for the People and A People for the King, looking at the stories that we find in First and 2 Kings. And we have some challenging ground to traverse today as we look at our text. We're so thankful for all that God's word is. As you're turning there, though, um, on your way in the last couple of weeks, you've been seeing these signs uh, that our children's ministry has put out, and I've loved what they have done in this, like, be a fire starter campaign. And so I couldn't help but want to mention it today uh, because you've been seeing it and you've seen the visuals in the lobby. And what that's all about is the impact that you can make on our kids' lives by volunteering in our Awesome Adventure Children's Ministry during the summer. As a lot of our regular teachers through the year take a summer break, we wanna invite you to help start a fire in a kid's heart for Jesus and help them walk with him. There's lots of opportunities to step into that. I love the job our team has done. Kelly Gordon, our communications director, as well as our Awesome Adventure team, Terry and Amy and Alicia and the whole team. They've just done such a fantastic job They are ready to equip you to help engage with kids this summer. So I just wanted to remind you of that opportunity. Uh, You can reach out to the church, find one of these folks in a green shirt, and they'll help get you connected to that. So I wanted to remind you of that. I got a ball in my hand, and I know you're all looking at it going, why does he have a ball in his hand? Why he holds it? I'm not going to chuck it at you in the back row. No t-shirt cannons today. Don't worry. How many of you have ever played uh, when you were growing up? One of my favorite games was uh, keep the ball up or don't let the ball hit the ground. Anybody play that? Yeah, a few of you, like, wow, it's the minority of us. All right, we played it a lot. So I told Ty we were gonna play a little bit. Uh, Well done, you didn't drop it. So we played this game when I was growing up. That's coming out of the shadows, so it's hard to see. That was a no look, I'd like to point that out. So we played this game growing up and I used to play it by myself because I really loved to, eyes over here, everybody, all right? I used to really love to play this game. And when you play it, thank you, everyone thank Ty for me. You can sit down. The rest of you are thinking, please don't throw it at me. So I used to play this game all the time. And so you get to where you get pretty good at it, right? And I used to like to play this game so much that I played it by myself, right? And you think, well, I didn't just do this. That's really lame. But what I did do was get in front of my parents' fireplace where there was a hearth. Did anybody have a hearth? And what you can do is if you short hop the ball, which means bounce it right in front, it will kick back up at a really pleasing angle, all right? And then you can catch it over and over. So I used to see how many I could do in a row without dropping it. And when you play that game with a friend or by yourself, the most disappointing moment is what? It's the moment you drop the ball. The moment the ball hits the ground, you just think to yourself, oh, and especially if you got to like 200, 300. So in my family, to give you a little insight into my growing up, we used to have all kinds of competitions like this. Like how many can you do off the hearth, you know, and catch it before dropping it? We used to take a golf club, a wedge, and a golf ball and bounce it as many times as you can without it hitting the ground. And there's trophies that went back and forth between my father and I as to who was winning these competitions. I mean, I was raised in a household of competition. It's a good time. All right. So we used to do this all the time. And the most disappointing moment is that moment where you fail, where the ball hits the ground. Now that's disappointing enough when you're playing a game, but it's all well and good because it's a game. But what is even more disappointing is when someone you've trusted in lets their word hit the ground. You ever had a moment where someone that you really trusted and cared about and they'd made a promise or a vow or a covenant with you. And it wasn't that a, a ball hit the ground in a game, it's that their word hit the ground. They didn't keep their word to you. Have you had that moment? Yeah, pretty much all of us have, right? My wife and I are at this point with our kids where you know, our kids are uh, 11 and nine and six. So the 11 and nine-year-old probably passed this point a little while ago. Uh, but the six-year-old is kind of right on the verge of it. It's that moment where as a dad, your kids are really young and they think you can do anything and that you know everything, right? Which isn't true, but that's the way they think. Like they think you can answer every question and they, that you've got the power to accomplish anything. And then there's that really sad moment where they have the realization that no matter how much dad might want to be able to do something or might want to be able to make something a certain way, he doesn't have the ability to do it. Those are sad moments. How many of you, yeah. Those are moments, it's like a sobering reality. You're like, oh, okay. But here's the thing about that moment. Amanda and I are learning to look to moments like that. And even honestly, just like playing catch with your kid or playing catch with a friend. And the next time that ball hits the ground, the thing that you and I are supposed to think about is that we need to put our trust in someone, to follow someone who's able to keep his word from hitting the ground. It will never hit the ground. Is there anyone like that? Is there anyone who can keep their word from ever hitting the ground. 
as we've been looking at First and Second Kings, just to kind of catch you up, and maybe it's your first time with us in a long time, as we go through this, here's what we've seen, is that we see king after king that reigns over God's people, and the nation has been divided into two nations, a northern kingdom Israel and a southern kingdom Judah. There's all these kings that keep coming to the throne, and let's see if we've learned our lesson. Do any of them succeed perfectly? No, that's kind of the message. Even the best ones have these really significant moments where their word hits the ground, where they fail, where they lie, where they cheat, where they murder. And all of that, this book is designed, both these books, First and Second Kings, are designed to teach us that no human king can be the kind of king we need. They're never the kind of object of our trust and following that we would need them to be. We learn that over and over from the bad ones and from the good ones. And as we come through the book, one of the things that happens is we've been seeing all these failures of all these kings, their word keeps hitting the ground. More specifically, the word of the Lord through them hits the ground. It doesn't come to fulfillment because they fail. But then the Lord turns his attention, if you remember the flow of the book, he turned our attention now for a section to the prophets, to Elijah and Elisha specifically, And the reason for that is that God was showing us, hey, these kings may be failing to speak my word and follow me and speak my truth, but I'm raising up these other men, these prophets, who will speak my word and who will follow me and who will do what I say. And so we've been in this season in the book where we focused on that, but now we're gonna turn the corner again. So just follow me now. We're gonna turn the corner back to focusing on some kings. So as the title of the books are, first and second kings, we return to thinking about some kings. And we come to a difficult passage today, 2 Kings chapter nine and 10. There's a lot of violence in these passages, which raises a lot of questions for Christians often. What do I make of all this kinds of violence? Now, it's a different kind of violence today than some of the other violence we see in the Old Testament. This is not the violence of the people of Israel going into the promised land and conquering and putting to death groups of people. That's a question for another day or a thing to think about another day. This is... uh, a disciplinary violence within the people of God. So a king named Jehu is going to come to the throne, and most of what he's going to do today is in fulfillment of God's prophetic word from before to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab, who had been the king and has departed from the scene now, but Jezebel's still around. And so that's where we pick up our story today. Let me read to you from 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And throughout this entire story, what I want you to see uh, is we're gonna look at this and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick some points of the rest of the chapter. I'm not gonna read both chapters in some total, although you can go read them afterwards, please do, in their totality. And I'm put in the sermon notes, I try to remember every week, I've forgotten some weeks, to put what we're gonna study next week. So you can always go and look and read ahead. It is not cheating in church to read ahead, right? That is allowed. So we're looking at chapter nine and 10. And in it, what we're gonna see is that Jehu, just like every other king, cannot be the king we need. And what we need is a king who is able to keep every one of God's words from falling to the ground. And I'll show you why we use that specific phrase. Able to bring to fulfillment every one of God's words. So chapter nine, verses one through 13, here's where the story picks up. It says, then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. We've only seen this two other times with David and with Saul where they're anointed and it's a declaration they're gonna be king. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Do you know why he has to run? because this is a betrayal to the king who currently is on the throne, right? So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council, and he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which of us all? And he said, to you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. 
for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I'll cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know this fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. In other words, you have oil all over your head. Something has happened. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Watch how fast they get in line with this. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Where else have we seen another story in scripture where garments are placed underneath someone and he is declared to be the king? Jesus at the triumphal entry, right? That moment alludes back to this one, which is why everyone gets so bent out of shape when Jesus welcomes it, because it's a declaration of kingship that is shown in Jehu and shown again for Jesus. So, we gotta do a little catch up, all right? Which means I gotta move a little bit quickly. Are we all turn the brains on? We ready? All right, cool. So let's do a little bit of background so that we make sure we're all on the same page and then we're gonna get to the point that we need to make today. So the background, the key background for this story that we just read is 1 Kings 19 and 1 Kings 21. If you remember in 1 Kings 19, Elijah was deeply discouraged. Jezebel and Ahab, particularly Jezebel, who are the most wicked king and queen to reign over Israel, they are doing all kinds of horrible things, including killing the prophets of God. And God says to Elijah, Elijah's very discouraged and sort of says, just kill me now. Like, I'm done with this. Like, my life is under threat. And God says to him, I'm gonna rescue you, don't worry. And there's this whole conversation with God. But at the end of that conversation, part of God's answer to him is, I want you to do two things. Now, we don't have any evidence that Elijah does them because Elisha ends up doing them. But he says, I want you to anoint Hazael, king over Syria, and I want you to anoint Jehu, king over Israel. So what's happened then from that moment is we've been waiting for this to happen. And we've been wondering, if we were to read this all in one sitting, we'd be like, huh, what happened to that? Like, seems like they did nothing with it. It seems like it just like got spoken and then it just disappeared. We've been waiting nine chapters actually for this to happen. And so in chapter eight, the one right before this, I didn't read it last week because we were focused on another part of the chapter. But Hazael is anointed by Elisha to be king of Syria. So that has finally come about. Then in this chapter, what did we just read? Who's getting anointed in this chapter? Jehu. So that part of 1 Kings 19 is coming to fruition. Now the servant, the prophet, who comes to do the anointing, he's told, declare him king and get out, right? But it's like he can't resist and he says a few other things. Did you catch it in verse seven through 10? He says, and I'm anointing you king and you're going to bring the punishment on the house of Ahab and Jezebel that God declared. Well, where did God declare that? In 1 Kings 21. And if you remember that story, and again, this is deeply wicked people. They have lied about a man named Naboth. He had a vineyard and Ahab wanted the vineyard. And like a little crybaby, when Naboth says, no, I'm not giving you my dad's inheritance. I'm not giving you my dad's land. He goes off whining and then Jezebel says, aren't you the king? I'll show you how to take care of this. And she has Naboth murdered. And when Naboth is murdered, Elijah comes to Jezebel and to Ahab and says, you have killed Naboth in an unjust way and there's gonna be a price to be paid for that. And he makes this prophecy that those are the words that we just read in verses seven through 10, almost word for word from 1 Kings 21, you and your descendants will all be destroyed because of what you have done. Your wickedness will come under the judgment of God. And now, since 1 Kings 21, we've been wondering and waiting because Ahab has had multiple sons become king. He had one son, and now his other son is on the throne. His name is Joram. So that's where we pick up the story. In 2 Kings 9, Ahab has died and gone. Jezebel is still alive. He has had one son and now another son named Joram, sometimes called Jehoram. And it gets really confusing because there's also a Jehoram who is king in Judah, right? But Joram, also Jehoram, is king in Israel. And in Judah, there's been a couple of kings that have passed by. And the king now is Ahaziah. And he is in the line of David, because you remember that the kings in Judah were all from the line of David because God had made a promise to David 
in 2 Samuel chapter seven, that his sons would be on the throne and that he would have one son in particular that would reign for eternity, pointing us to Jesus. All right, so is that enough ketchup for us, yes? All right, good, fantastic. I always think of, you gotta put a little ketchup on, when, if the meat's tough, you gotta put a little ketchup on it, all right? So in this text now, we've seen all of that. That's the context, that's what's happening. Now, you notice how quick the rest of the military commanders are to be like, yes, Jehu, you be king, right? It's because they're recognizing that Ahab's descendants are wicked. They don't like anything about these descendants and they're ready to have Jehu on the throne. Here's what happens next, and we're not gonna read all of these stories, but it's a challenging set of stories because the very next thing is Jehu is going to kill Joram and he's going to kill Ahaziah, actually, the king of Judah. That's a tricky one. So he kills Joram, he kills Ahaziah. There's a whole story there. I'm gonna read you a few sentences from it in a minute. Then he goes on to kill Jezebel and the dogs eat her on the land of Naboth or right there outside the wall of Jezreel, just like the prophecy had declared. Then after that, he goes on to kill uh, many of Ahab's sons, or all of Ahab's sons and many of his friends and even some priests. And then finally, he kills the prophets of Baal. So if you had to summarize the chapter, it's a lot of death. It's Jehu begins to exercise God's judgment one after another, after another, after another. Story after story after story. Now, in chapter 10, verse 10, we find these words. Here's where our little game of catch comes in. In chapter 10, verse 10, Jehu speaks these words. He says, know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. In other words, everything God has said will be fulfilled. And he's pointing out that what he's doing is a fulfillment of what God had promised. Does that make sense so far? Are you with me? All right. So that's what he declares. Now, <clears throat> as we look at these chapters, here's what we're gonna see. In one sense, Jehu does not let the word of the Lord fall to the ground. God had indeed said, there will be a punishment upon the house of Ahab and I will bring it about. And so in that sense, he very much accomplishes it. But in another sense, as we look closer, we find out that Jehu does that in a very imperfect way, just like all the kings who come before him. There is a violence that runs over in Jehu beyond its boundaries, beyond the word of the Lord. There is an inability to put away idols in the way that God had commanded. And so Jehu, like everybody else, is not the king we're looking for. Look at these stories. I wanna help you how to help you understand how to think about some of this. Now, most of us can probably resonate with the idea that these wicked people had been, there had been judgment stored up for them and we've been waiting to see if God would in fact do what he said he would do by way of punishment and here comes that punishment. Now, we can wrestle with that even while some of us might find ourselves thinking, oh my goodness, like this much violence, what, what do I do with that? By the way, the scriptures are not G-rated, fair enough? Not at all, and they do not skip over hard stuff, which is why we do not skip over hard stuff. You gotta deal with these kinds of realities the scripture speaks to again and again. So, ultimately, here's what I want us to see today, is that Jehu's imperfect ability to judge cries out to us to see that we need a king who can judge perfectly. We need someone who's able to not let any one of God's words hit the ground, both his words of judgment and also words of salvation and hope. And I wanna show you how Jesus is that perfect king. So let me show you how Jehu doesn't measure up. Let me show you where he does do some good, where he doesn't measure up. And then I wanna show you how Jesus, you can treasure him because there's so much hope to be derived from his ability to be a perfect judge. And to understand that judgment is a reality is something we need to see today. And I wanna help you see that. As hard as that can be sometimes for us to, to comprehend. So let's look at how we need a king who can carry out God's word of judgment perfectly. So first, here's what we see in Jehu. The first thing we notice is that he does have zeal to carry out the word of the Lord. There's this great part in verses 20 and 22 uh, in chapter nine. Look at it with me. Jehu is now writing in to put to death Joram Ahaziah happens to be with him because they had gone to battle together. Joram had been wounded. And so Ahaziah goes to visit him, to check on him. And his association with this wicked king is gonna cost him his life, all right? So here's what happens in chapter nine, verse 20. We find these words. 
the watchman is looking out and, he's sent, and they see this person coming in a chariot. And so they send out these multiple, um, these multiple soldiers to check and say, hey, are you coming in peace? Or what's the matter? Is everything okay? And with each of those soldiers, we find that Jehu says, get behind me and ride with me. And they do. So then eventually Joram himself is gonna come out and say, what's the matter? Like, why are you riding in? But this is how Jehu is described. It says, again, the watchman reported, he reached them, the messenger, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. How many of you would describe someone in your family as they drive furiously? It's an interesting way to be noted. Here's what I want you to see in that is that Jehu was already known to be a man who had zeal, who had passion. He cared about what God wanted, at least to a degree, it would seem. And so he's overflowing, so much so that when he's driving in his chariot, he is recognizable. I see some of you smirking about people next to you. Don't insult their driving right now. It's not the time. (laughs) He is known as one who has zeal for the Lord. More than that, more than that, look at what happens next. He says... In verses 24 through 26, not only does he have zeal, but he also remembers what the Lord has said. So verse 24, and Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Did you catch in accordance with the word of the Lord? In other words, Jehu knows what God has said. And there's a part of him that says, okay, this is the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Those are both good things. And he declares, we already read verse 10 of chapter 10 where he declares his commitment to not let a word of the Lord regarding the house of Ahab fall to the ground. So, so far so good in terms of being God's vehicle, his instrument for judgment. But where does Jehu fail? And here's where he fails. He fails to carry out that judgment correctly, whether it's because his zeal runs over or whether it's because he lacks the knowledge he needs to or because he ends up being more self-interested than he is interested in the purposes of God. We find Ultimately, that Jehu fails to be the instrument he needs to be. So in verse 27 and 28, I'm not gonna read those to you. He kills Ahaziah, the king of Judah. And this is a tricky one because Second Chronicles actually says that Ahaziah died at Jehu's hand and that God had willed it. That's actually what Second Chronicles says, that God willed that Jehu would kill Ahaziah. Yet Ahaziah has no command from the Lord that, we are, that is recorded for us in Scripture So we wonder, is he going beyond God's command? Is this idea of you're supposed to be this vehicle, this instrument for judgment, are you going beyond what God has said? It's the first indicator that that might be the case, right? And keep in mind that to kill a king of Judah is to kill someone in the line of David, which is very different because the promise had been made to David to have a son on the throne. And so you're taking up arms against a direct promise of God. So that's a very like sort of, wary thing, all right? But there might be room in in, uh, 2 Chronicles for us to go, okay, it seems that God affirms that. But what happens next is that Jehu then kills not just all of the sons of Ahab and the sons of Joram, he actually kills his friends. He has no command to do that. He kills priests who, we don't know if they're priests of Baal because he goes to kill them later or if they're priests of the Lord that just supported Ahab. So he begins to kill indiscriminately. And then the, the kind of capper on that is that he kills all of Ahaziah's kids, 42 of them. And he definitely does not have a command to do that. Here's the interesting thing. Here, how do we know how God feels about this? Hosea chapter one, verse four. In Hosea chapter one, verse four, we find these words. God is speaking to Hosea And it says, the Lord said to him, said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel, the son that he just had. Call your son's name Jezreel, for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. 
So what we find there is that the prophet is speaking to the house of Jehu, to the sons of Jehu, and saying, your father was an instrument of judgment, but he went too far. So when I was, uh, this is maybe a little bit of a silly example, but you, this happens to all of us where we have zeal for the Lord and then we, it runs over into places it shouldn't run over, right? We might even be God's vessel to bring a, a word of critique or of correction, but in our lack of wisdom and maybe even in our own selfishness, it runs over. I'm not an incredibly handy guy. I did a remodel of our bathroom in Austin, our guest bath, and I got into demo mode. Now, how many of you have ever gotten into demo mode and done more damage than good? Because I get into demo mode and I think to myself, I got that angle stop on the wall. I don't need to turn the water off that runs into the house. That is your first mistake. I proceed to rip out the vanity. I rip out the toilet. I am taking the mirrors off the wall. I'm like, let's get it down to the studs. I get everything down. The angle stops on the wall. I have forgotten, Trent, you didn't turn the water off. Don't rip the angle stop off. And I rip, it's got a compression fitting. The only positive of the story is that I was strong enough to get it off the wall. I yank on that sucker and I yank on that sucker. Nothing in my brain tells me you are doing something stupid. Stop it. I yank the thing off the wall and all you handy people out there, what happens? Water starts gushing into the house. And like a moron, I try to just get the fitting back on. I scream to Amanda, get towels. She gets them. She starts like trying to hold the flow back. I run outside. I've got to turn off the water to the house. I do not have... There's no basements in Texas. They don't exist. So your water shutoff is outside. What happens when your water shutoff is outside? It gets corroded and hard and I can't get it off. I am praying to, I literally said, Lord, it's, Lord showed up. I said, Lord, please help me turn the water off. I cannot get it off. I'm yanking on this thing. And as soon as I said that prayer, turned it, water came off. I flooded our, our bathroom and into our bedroom two inches deep. It was awful. Sometimes when you get in demo mode, I'm just destroying everything. You do more harm than good. You go beyond what you're supposed to do. And that's what happens with Jehu here. His zeal for the Lord is there, but he doesn't know how to exercise God's judgment rightly. He doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the insight. He's filled with his own sense of righteousness and he ultimately fails to do what is right before the Lord. Now, the next thing that happens with Jehu and where he fails, we find in verses 27 and 28. Let me show you. In verse 27 and 28, we find these words of chapter, uh, chapter nine. I gotta find my spot here. Oh, no, sorry, that's when he, I mean to go to chapter 10. Chapter 10, 28 and 29. So flip your page over. In chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, this is what we find. After all that violence, it says, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. So he's just killed the prophets of Baal. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So if you remember, when Jeroboam became, he was the first king of the northern kingdom when the kingdoms had divided. And he was really worried that all the people were gonna go start worshiping in Jerusalem. They were gonna go to the temple like God had instructed them and they were gonna worship. And so he said, I need to set up an alternate place of worship. So he made two golden calves and put them in the northern kingdom in separate places. And he said, don't go to Jerusalem to worship like God told you, go to these places. And so what's so interesting here is Jehu is destroying one idol, but perfectly happy to leave another one in place. Aren't we like that sometimes? We'll get rid of one idol, but the one that serves our purposes really well, we leave right in place because it serves us and we want it or we need it. And so Jehu does that. So it's this indicator. That's kind of the final word on Jehu's life. He leaves the throne and leaves the kingdom. And even while he's done one thing well or executed God's word and not let it fall to the ground in one place, ultimately he's a failure because in so many ways he does not bring the king, the kingdom any closer to God. He maintains idols. He operates out of political expediency and selfishness. Now, having seen both that Jehu in some ways executes God's word and in other ways fails to do it, what do we do with that, right? As you look at that, what is the lesson that we're supposed to learn from it? And here's the lesson. I know I keep repeating it, but the lesson is this. When you read this, you're not supposed to go, wow, this is really violent. Or you're not supposed to go, wow, Ahab finally got judged, right, for all his wickedness, for all the things he did wrong. What you're supposed to see 
is that again and again and again, these kings can't be what we need. We need a king who can judge perfectly, who can judge with precision and wisdom and righteousness and never fail. This passage is meant to point us to the judgment of Jesus and how he does that perfectly. So let me answer a couple questions. Let's, person- let's just magnify and dwell on the perfect wisdom of Jesus who never lets one of God's words fall to the ground. When the ball is thrown to Jesus, he catches it every time. The word never hits the ground. So why do we need a king who can judge perfectly? Some of you might think, well, why not? Wouldn't it be better to have a king who doesn't judge at all? Wouldn't it be better if there was no judgment? If at the end, everybody is ushered into the kingdom and I resonate with that sentiment and that thought because there's a beauty in it, but ultimately God's word declares to us that there will be a judgment and we are not the ones that determine who and what will be saved. God has made that declaration. Now, here's what I will say to that. When you think about judgment and why do we want a king who judges at all, we don't have to go further back than even 24 hours to look for an example of why we need a king who will judge. Because less than 24 hours ago, a wicked man walked into a supermarket in Buffalo and opened fire on people. And he didn't just take the lives of 10 image bearers. He took them, it would seem, because of a way that they bore the image of God, because of the color of their skin. And they hated them for that. Not just taking the lives of image bearers, but saying a way that they bear the image of God, a way that they reflect the very nature of God. I hate them for that. And that is evil, would you agree? It is evil personified. And friends, can I just tell you, you do not want a God who turns a blind eye to that kind of evil. You do not want a God who turns a blind eye to that kind of wickedness. You want a God who rightly punishes and judges evil and wickedness and doesn't just wash over it. Now, the reality for that young man is that he will either bear the penalty for the wickedness he has committed or he will turn himself to Jesus and Jesus will bear that for him. Think about how astounding that is. There is no wickedness that you have committed or that I have committed that cannot be borne by the blood of Jesus. That's how sufficient it is. It's how powerful it is, it's how mighty it is. But judgment will come and you want judgment to come. It's a very Western notion and idea that we think it's undue of God to punish wickedness. Most of human history is filled with people living under atrocities and violence and injustice. And if you asked every generation of every people group, perhaps maybe other than ours, they would say, oh, we want a God who is just and who punishes wickedness. It's a new idea to think that we would want a God who wouldn't do that. And I would argue it's a foolish one. Now listen, second part to that is not just that we want a God who punishes wickedness, it's that God himself has declared that he will do it. And so whether I want it or not is kind of beside the point. Do you see what I'm saying? If God has declared that there is a day of judgment, then it doesn't matter whether I want there to be or not. I need to deal with the reality that there is. Listen to Isaiah chapter two, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Or Malachi chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And what I'm not reading to you is the next verse, which says, but for those who trust in the son of righteousness, he will rise with healing in his wings. So listen, we need a king who judges. We have been told there will be judgment. What if we had a king who had zeal to judge, but not the knowledge required to do it well? What would be the result of that? it would be that the righteous would get judged with the wicked. 
It would be that judgment overflows as with Jehu, as with just this sort of, I'm in demo mode, and it just overflows. Do you want a king whose judgment is indiscriminate and just goes wild? No. You want a king who can judge with perfect precision. What if we had perfect zeal and perfect knowledge, but we lacked power to actually bring about judgment? on evil and on wickedness. What would be the result of that? It would be that some wickedness would always remain. The judgment may come and some righteousness may be vindicated, but ultimately we would never get rid of evil. We need a judge who can judge with perfect power, with perfect zeal, and with perfect wisdom. Yes, that's what we need. Now, listen how Jesus meets those qualifications. Jesus is God's judge. We find this in Acts chapter 17. Now, you might not think about Jesus as a judge. We often talk about him as savior, as friend, Lord, but Jesus is declared to be God's judge. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, Paul, speaking to the men of Athens, says this, says, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now that's a really interesting quote from Paul because what is he saying? He's saying the resurrection of Jesus bears witness to the fact that Jesus is God's judge. That on the day that God is set apart and determined that judgment will come, Jesus will be the one doing the judging And the reason we know that is because he has raised him from the dead. Now just put a pin there for a second because we're gonna come to something, another word of God that Jesus is able to prevent from hitting the floor, hitting the ground that is also borne witness to by his resurrection so that it is his resurrection that bears witness to the fact that he is judged and also to something else. In just a little bit, we'll come to that. Jesus is God's perfect judge. The second thing we see is that he's able to put all evil under judgment. Listen to me. No evil will remain once Jesus exercises his judgment. Ponder that for a moment. There is not one jot, one shred, one ounce, one moment, one thought, one act that is wickedness that will remain once Jesus has brought his judgment into the world. All evil, all wickedness, all sin will be gone forever. That's how powerful he is to judge. This is what we find in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 15. Listen to these words. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. That means my judgment. To repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And listen, there are lists just like this one In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, you can make a note of that if you want and look it up later. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, the point of these lists is not to be exhaustive, it's to say this, it's that when Jesus comes and brings his judgment, all those who practice evil and wickedness will be outside. They will be left outside the city walls of the new Jerusalem and all those who are righteous will be ushered in. Jesus is able to put an end to all unrighteousness, all sin. But here's the beauty of that. Jesus is also able to not condemn anyone who is righteous. So in other words, while we promise and know, have a promise from God that Jesus is able to judge all wickedness, that all evil will be done away with and it will never exist again, there will not be anyone who is righteous who will fall under his judgment. In other words, it's not gonna overflow and accidentally splash out onto anyone who is righteous. That's how precise his judgment will be. It will be a perfect 
judgment, touching none who are righteous. This is what Acts chapter 10, verses 42 through 43 teach us. He says, and he commanded us, this is Paul talking, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In other words, there's a proclamation of judgment. He's the one who will do it, but he is able to bring forgiveness to everyone who is in that camp of righteousness. Now, we're gonna come to the problem that that raises here in just a moment because there probably should be a question in your brain to go, well, the category of who is righteous is a category of zero. So what should we do with that? But just hold with me for a moment. Here's how precise the judgment of Jesus is. We're still just thinking about this in terms of his ability to be the king who judges perfectly, unlike Jehu. His judgment is so perfect that not a single bit of righteousness will be caught up in it, not a single bit of evil or wickedness will remain, but also it's so precise that he is able to save you while also judging your sin and wickedness. He's able to be so precise that he can come in with a scalpel at surgical levels and go, everything in you that is wicked and evil, gone. Everything that is right and good remains. That's how perfect his judgment is. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 are talking about when it says this. It talks about Jesus being the foundation that has been laid for us. And then it says, we will build on that foundation with, he uses a metaphor, either precious stones and jewels, or we will build upon it with wood and hay and stubble. It's a metaphor for how we use our gifts and our time and our talents and our treasure. Do we use it for eternal purposes or do we not? And then he says this. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But then get the next sentence. Though he himself will be what? Saved, but only as through fire. And listen, as your pastor, my prayer is that you would build upon the foundation of Jesus with valuable things, that when it comes to the judgment of God, he would say, well done, and you would receive a reward. That would be my desire for you, yes? What a good thing that would be, to invest your life for the sake of the kingdom of God, to make disciples, to love your neighbor, to serve the poor, to share the, the good news of Jesus with those who are lost. That would be my prayer. That is building with precious stones, jewels, but even if in foolishness you spend your time investing in things that don't matter, that don't count, imbibing your selfishness, even if you are to do that, but yet you are truly in the kingdom of God that you have placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, do you see what he's saying here? You yourself will be saved even while your wickedness will be judged. That's how precise the judgment of God is through Jesus. It doesn't catch up anything that shouldn't be caught up and it doesn't miss anything that should be taken up. Does that make sense, yes? Now, that is the beauty of Jesus as the perfect judge, but here's even better because Jehu says, I'm not gonna let a single word of God fall to the ground when it comes to Ahab, but he lets other words of God fall to the ground, doesn't he? He doesn't produce any greater righteousness. He doesn't save anybody. He doesn't help anybody. He simply executes judge like a blunt hammer. And there's some of that that is right before the Lord, but much of it is not. And here, my friends, is the beauty of Jesus is that he doesn't just prevent God's words of judgment from falling to the ground. He prevents God's words of salvation and hope and joy and love and peace from falling to the ground. Jesus is able to bring to fulfillment every word that God has spoken. You know that. Every word that God has spoken, Jesus is the assurance that it will come to pass. So listen with me now. He's able to condemn none who are righteous, as we said, and we said that's a category of zero, right? Because Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks God. So we have a problem. If no one is righteous, 
and God judges wickedness, but spares the righteous, saves the righteous, restores the righteous, what do we do? The answer is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which tells us that he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what, church? The righteousness of God. This is how Jesus brings to fulfillment God's promises. This is how no word of God falls to the ground. Jesus says, when I come, I will give you my righteousness, which is why the category of forgiveness that Acts chapter 10, verse 43 that we read, that it talks about, that's why any of us can be forgiven. You cannot be forgiven without righteousness being given to you without righteousness being acquired somehow. You can strain and strive for it. You will never accomplish it. You will never have it. All your moral good works are filthy rags to God. But the righteousness of Jesus has been imparted to you through faith and for faith. Place your faith in him. Give him. Do you treasure him? Do you see it, church? This is the treasure that Jesus is. He doesn't just bring to fulfillment words of judgment. He brings to fulfillment. He doesn't let a single word of God hit the ground as it pertains to his saving work. If you trust in him, the righteousness that is his is yours. And as a result, you rest assured you will not come under judgment. You will receive life. You will receive salvation. You will be his. He is able to impart his righteousness. Now, here's, here's the beauty just to take that final step, okay? Last piece of scripture to share with you today, Romans chapter four. We saw in Acts chapter 17 that it's his resurrection from the dead that declares that he's the one who will be the judge. It's also his resurrection from the dead that declares that he is the one who's able to save. Listen to Romans chapter 24, chapter four, verse 23 and 24 talking about Abraham, but the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, in other words, the righteousness of God will be counted to us who believe in him, who what? Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, what Romans 4 is saying is in the same way that Abraham was not justified by the things that he did, but he was justified before God because he believed and God gave him righteousness because he believed. He does the same thing for you and I. If you believe, you will receive righteousness and none who are righteous will come under the condemning hand of God. Praise God. You will not fall, the wrath of God will not fall on you because Jesus is the perfect judge and he is the perfect savior able to impart his righteousness to you so that clothed in that righteousness, the wrath of God will not fall on you. And what did we just hear is the reason we know that that righteousness can be imparted to us because he was raised from the dead. We are justified through his saving, resurrecting work. The resurrection is the evidence that he is the judge and it is the evidence that he is the savior. Praise God. Now listen here, friends. Here's what I want you to understand. In Jesus, not a single one of God's words will ever hit the ground. That includes words of judgment. That should be sobering for us. And for those of you who don't believe, please hear us. Paul said in Philippians chapter three, verse 18 and 19, I tell you now, even with tears in my eyes, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And the first words of verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Friends, we tell you that with tears in our eyes because we want you to see Jesus take shelter under his saving blood, believe in him, and the judgment of God will not fall upon you because he is a perfect savior just as he is a perfect judge. But know that there is a day of judgment. There is, and it is right and good to rejoice in the perfect wisdom of God who is able to judge all wickedness and evil without judging one shred of righteousness. We want you to hear that. For the people of God, those who have taken shelter under Jesus from the wrath of God, celebrate the perfect savior that you have. How good is he? How perfectly powerful, how perfectly wise, how perfectly discriminant in his judgment. But also know this, 
It's not just words of judgment and salvation that never hit the ground in Jesus. It's words about hope. Romans chapter five. He can actually turn suffering into hope. Did you know that? Suffering produces what? Endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. That's a promise. Jesus will keep it from falling to the ground. He always catches that ball. Philippians chapter one, verse six. He will complete the good work he's begun in you at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. Romans chapter eight, verse 38 and 39. Nothing, neither sword nor tribulation nor distress nor persecution nor nakedness nor famine nor sword will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You are always loved in him. Jesus is able to bring that promise to fulfillment. The word of God never hits the ground in the hands of Jesus. First Peter chapter one, verse four and five. He has declared to us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And that living hope results in a promise and an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading, that will be ours. That's a promise. And it will not hit the ground because Jesus is able to keep it from hitting the ground. Promise after promise after promise after promise. Promises of peace. When we pray to him, he gives a peace that passes understanding or comprehension. It's a promise, and it does not hit the ground because Jesus is able to keep it from hitting the ground. I drop the ball all the time, so do you. Jesus never has and never will. Perfect judge, perfect savior, perfect deliverer on every one of God's promises. Place your hope in him. He is enough. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are perfectly wise and perfectly good. Help us to remember that you are the only one with the ability to judge wisely. It's why we can follow the words of Romans 12, Lord Jesus, when you tell us, vengeance is mine. Don't return evil for evil. It's why we can turn the other cheek because we know you've promised to bring your judgment and you will bring it perfectly. You will bring it against wickedness and not towards any righteousness. Thank you for your perfect judgment. Lord Jesus, as we close our time together, my prayer would be from my people that their hearts would be full of affection for you, seeing that you are higher than us, wiser than us, better than us. And yet you condescend to us. You bow and you come down. You kneel down in love to save, to redeem, to receive our worship and praise. So would you have that now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.